Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 250. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, sure, 250 of this reincarnation of Starship Sofa. How cool is that? Wow. And don't forget, just you know, what's straight in there when it hit you? Don't forget the old shows, the originals from show one to 102. Yes, we have done that many anyways. We're on to 300 and God knows what now. But 250 of this style. Wow. Thank you so much for sticking around. A little bit of a celebration cheer. Yes. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have... Cheapskates, again, Adam has d- delved into a kind of fantastic little review there. And like I say, if you listen, just Adams are just getting more and more in-depth and involved, and it's lovely to listen to them. Then we have Bruce Sterling's short story, no less. A story entitled The Exterminator's Want Ad. It's narrated by Mike Allen as well. <laughs> Mike just hits this nail right on the head. And we have a little promo for, a little, a little, when I say little, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis is doing or taking degree courses now in science fiction. She's running that. We've got a little promo for Amy as well. Wow. So kicking straight off is Adam with his cheapskates. Adam, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Before we really get started with today's review, I wanted to share a few Cheapskates related news and notes. First, for any of you who followed my lead and got a $79 ad supported Kindle, 
You might like to know that there's a software update now available. It's supposed to create a crisper, more paper-like experience, at least according to Amazon. Frankly, I don't notice much difference, but then again, I was pleased with the previous software version as well. If you have kids who enjoy picture books with you, however, you'll appreciate the new version. These now display with thicker border lines, giving you clearer pictures in the black and white format, even if the pictures were originally in color. Second, on to the Kindle's main competitor, the Barnes & Noble Nook. They now have a new product offering that I think is brilliant, the Nook Simple Touch with Glow Light. It's nearly cheapskate-worthy at $139, and it solves one of my greatest frustrations with the Kindle. It looks like paper, but you also have to light it like paper if you want to read before bed. This version of the Nook claims to create a soft, even glow across the e-ink display when you turn on the built-in light. No turning on an in-table lamp or buying a clip-on light. It sounds like a great solution that will likely make the Nook my next reader when I have, inevitably, broken my Kindle. Finally, I wanted to let you know about a bit of an expansion to the reviews here on Cheapskates. While the free books I review for Cheapskates are a big chunk of my content consumption, they are by no means the only things I'm reading or listening to. So I'm starting this new thing called Cheap Cheeps. That's C-H-E-A-P-C-H-E-E-P-S. Just the perfect joke for an audio podcast, right? Anyway, these will be Twitter-length reviews of science fiction and fantasy books, short stories, movies, and other SF podcasts. These will all be content that I've enjoyed for free, but I'm not able to use them here for cheapskates because I have no way to guarantee that you can get them for free. I might have enjoyed these for free thanks to a library loan, a free promotion, search rewards points, gifts, and so forth. You can check out these short reviews on Twitter by looking up the handle at CheapCheapSF. I'll also use this new Twitter handle for other Cheapskates news and updates. Hope you enjoy. All right, uh, on to today's review. Two months ago, I promised you Star Wars, but put you off to do a tribute to Ray Bradbury instead. I hope you didn't mind. But now I'm making good on my promise with a review of the free Lost Tribe of the Sith novellas by John Jackson Miller. These come in eight parts, so I thought I might use this as an opportunity to do something a little different on the review. Here's the setup. See, a few months ago, my wife bought me the best phone I have ever owned. A credit to her generosity and everlasting patience. It's a Samsung Replenish, and it's the first phone I've had with a touchscreen and running the Android operating system. Owners of fancier phones might scoff, but for me, it's awesome. Just a quick rundown of what my phone can do at this moment includes web browser, calculator, calendar, camera, video camera, clock, contact list, email, GPS, device, navigator, mud client, crossword puzzle, sketchbook, an app that does nothing but turn my ringer back on when I forget to, mp3 player, text messaging, voicemail, to-do list, word processor, spreadsheet program, PowerPoint presentation program, stopwatch, kitchen timer, more games than I can ever hope to play, including Angry Birds, Fruit Ninja, 250 solitaire games, and a flashlight. Or a torch, if you insist. 
there's uh, something else I can do too, but it uh, can't be too important. Hmm. This all comes around to say, there are three apps in particular on my phone that are relevant to this episode of Cheapskates. The first is a standalone game of Pazak, which players of the Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic game would recognize as the Star Wars Universe card game that's part blackjack, part collectible card game. What an age we live in, huh? The other two relevant apps are the Kindle and Alkido e-reader apps currently on my phone. As I was tinkering with e-reader apps, it occurred to me that the Star Wars novellas I'm reviewing this month come in eight parts, so I thought I would put my phone through its paces and read each one using a different e-reader app, then review each of them on my blog. However, this proved to be a far more difficult in practice than in theory. The first four were easy enough. For the most part, they're made by the same people who are doing a decent job of making full-size e-readers. The Kindle app made the grade, even though it's clunky and basic, because, well, it's the only one that can read the Kindle format. Aldeco was recommended to me by my local library. It reads the more open-source EPUB format fairly well, even with digital copyright protection features, and with a minimum of space. Nook and Kobo apps were also fairly easy to find and performed competently, but were simply too big for me to keep around on my bare-bones smartphone. But after that, finding another four was a torture of programs that wouldn't work, incompatible formats, and awkward processes just to get them to read. In the end, I managed to eke out getting Moon Plus Reader, iReader, HAL eReader, and Digibooks for All to actually read the last four books. But it was a close thing. I won't consume my segment with detailed reviews of each app, but if you want that, I'm going to post the blow-by-blow on my site, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. However, to give you the broad strokes, reading on an e-phone is an entirely different e-book experience, altogether. Reading, reading on, on an e-phone is, is an entirely, entirely different, different e-book, e-book experience. experience. Okay, bad jokes from the airplane movie aside, relying on my mobile phone to read these was as different from reading a traditional book as possible. For starters, there's a the size. My Samsung Replenish has a mere 2.8-inch screen, making it feel like I'm reading a book off a pad of post-it notes. An iPhone gets you to just 3.5 inches, and even the phones with the absolutely largest screens fall well short of 5 inches. In addition, there's the much shorter battery life. I have to charge my phone daily, but with e-ink, we're talking about a month. But on the positive side is a high portability. Because my phone is already in my pocket, it's easy to open up my books and catch a few minutes of reading in the small gaps of life, waiting in lines, walking to the car, waiting for a meeting to begin. Part positive, part negative, is having a lighted display like a computer screen rather than the e-ink. The good is that it's possible to read in the dark before bed, although even on the lowest brightness setting, it feels too bright. The drawback is that it's much more difficult to read a phone in bright sunlight. Even on the brightest setting, 
it never feels quite bright enough. But that's enough on the medium. Let's get to the content. When I first bought my Kindle, one of my first orders of business was to browse the top 100 free science fiction books list on Amazon. I was shocked when some of the first books to stand out to me were the Lost Tribe of the Sith novelette series by John Jackson Miller. I mean, who gives Star Wars away for free? I was dubious at first that the books were even official. For one, John Jackson Miller was new to me as an author. What I now know is that Miller is best known for his work on comic books and graphic novels, having been the writer on Star Wars Knight Errant, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, Mass Effect, and the graphic version of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for Dark Horse Comics. He's also written Iron Man and Crimson Dynamo for Marvel. Miller's had his share of more traditional sci-fi fiction with novel versions of Star Wars Knight Errant, a number of short stories for the official Star Wars site, and a contribution to the Armored Anthology, edited by John Joseph Adams. I also then quickly found out that Del Rey was the publisher and that the novelettes were listed in the official timelines of the books and movies. I also figured out why it's free content. Each has been associated with the release of a new book in the Star Wars Fate of the Jedi series and includes a teaser chapter to encourage the ultimate purchase of a full-length novel. I'd actually read some of the Fate of the Jedi series before discovering the free novelettes, and I'd actually recommend reading the full-length novels first, even though that isn't the intention. It'll give you some context for what's going on and why you should care about the characters. And, if I may use that to transition into the plot, figuring out what's going on was one of the biggest issues I found as I started into the first novelette, entitled Precipice. You're pretty much thrown into the Bacta tank and told to swim. Actually, whether you understand that metaphor or not is a good first test of how much unfamiliar territory you'll encounter in Lost Tribe of the Sith. For example... Right up front, you need to know that 5,000 Years BBY stands for Before Battle of Yavin, a.k.a. Star Wars A New Hope, a.k.a. the first time they blew up the Death Star, a.k.a. the first Star Wars movie. If you need another reference point, 5,000 Years BBY makes the initial tales told in the first four books, Precipice, Skyborn, Paragon, and Savior, the oldest tales in the chronology of the Star Wars universe, already a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So if, like me, you aren't already familiar with Hodin, the Hook, Primus Galud, the Masasi, or the Dark Lord Nagasado, you'll probably want to have Wikipedia, the Star Wars wiki, brought up on your computer and handy for reference. The plot of the first four books follows the captain and crew of the Omen, a Sith mining and transport ship that is attacked by Jedi and jumps to hyperspace to escape. Off in their navigation by just a hair, they crash onto the backwater of Kesh, a mineral-poor planet populated by a beautiful, pale-purple-skinned people 
holding to a religion laden with superstition. The small but powerful population of Sith take advantage of this fact to subdue the locals under their control, even as they squabble and backstab each other in the manner you would expect from an entire society of Sith. This is complicated further by the existence of a Kashiri resistance to Sith rule. I found the turns of these first four novelettes generally unsurprising and the writing solid, even if it wasn't stellar. Nothing to complain about, truly, but neither have I been bringing them up with like-minded nerds, the clearest sign I've been impressed with a work of fiction. No, what I actually found the most compelling in the first four novelettes is the underlying concept. In the rest of the Star Wars fiction I've encountered, everyone takes the precognition, telepathy, and telekinesis of the Force, lightsabers, and hyperspace travel in stride. It's just a given of their universe. Here we get a whole new view by seeing Force users for the first time through the Kashiri eyes. For the first time, it made me consider what would happen on our own planet if Jedi, or heaven forbid Sith, were suddenly to appear. Miller himself describes the feeling the novelettes create quite well in this excerpt from an interview he did with Fictional Frontiers, a weekly radio show about pop culture on WNJC in Philadelphia. You know, Star Wars is a space fantasy. Uh, this is more or less pure fantasy. Mm because the only technology that exists on this planet is lightsabers. Uh, the, that, was, that was set up by the lost uh, Tribe of the Sith's creator authors uh, you know, from the Fate of the Jedi novels. Uh, you know, all they've got is their force powers and, uh, and lightsabers, and then, of course, this you know, giant uh, you know, population that's there of natives who have been tricked into thinking mm-hmm. that they are uh, their deities. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a, a very much of a different aesthetic here. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a world with very little metal. Uh, they've had to make do with, uh, with whatever they've got. Uh, and, you know, it, it very much has more of a, you know, lightsaber and sorcery feel to it, uh, than, you know, ray guns and, and, uh, you know, hyperspace. The next two novelettes, Purgatory and Sentinel, form their own mini-story arc and mark a jump forward in time of more than a millennium. These were actually my favorite out of all eight of the books. First, because it's the only one where we encounter any Jedi and get to see their perspective of this forgotten Sith culture on Kashiri. Second, there are fun connections into the Knights of the Old Republic series which I certainly enjoyed. Next, the novelettes introduce the concept of there being a huge portion of the Sith culture generally outside of the political scheming and backstabbing. It reminded me of Eddie Izzard's old bit on the Death Star Canteen. Here's a short sample of that routine, just, well, because it's brilliant. But there must have been a Death Star Canteen, yeah? There must have been a a cafeteria downstairs in between battles where Darth Vader could just chill and go down. I will have the penne a la Arabiata. <laughs> You'll need a tray. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? This is not a game of who the f*** 
for you. For I am Vader, Darth Vader, Lord Vader. I can kill you with a single thought. Well, you'll still need a tray. No, I will not need a tray. I do not need a tray to kill you. I can kill you without a tray, with the power of the force, which is strong within me. Even though I could kill you with a tray, if I so wished. For I would hack at your neck with the thin bit until the blood flowed across the canteen floor. Now, the food is hot. You'll need a tray to put the food on. Oh, I see the food is hot. I'm sorry. I, I did not realize. <laughs> oh, tray for the... Yes. I thought you were challenging me to the fight to the death. Fight to the death? I, this is a canteen. I work here. Yes, but I am Vader. I am Lord Vader. Everyone challenges me to a fight to the death. Lord Vader, Darth Vader. I'm Darth Vader. Lord, Sir Lord Vader. Sir Lord Darth Vader. Lord Darth, Sir Lord, Lord Vader of Cheem. Sir Lord Baron Von Vaderham. The Death Star. I've run the Death Star. What's the Death Star? This is the Death Star. You're in the Death Star. I run this star. This is a star. This is a f***ing star. I run it. I'm your boss. You're Mr. Stevens. No, I'm... Who is Mr. Stevens? He's head of catering. I'm not head of catering. I am Vader. I can kill catering with a thought. What? I can kill you all. I can kill me with a thought. Just... I'll get a tray. You know that these regular folks have to exist underneath the high-drama space opera, but I've never actually seen it shown in any detail in any other work besides these novellas. It's intriguing to consider that behind any dark empire, there's a vast number of ordinary people going about their daily tasks with little or no concept of what happens at the upper echelons of society. Finally, whether Miller intended it or not, I found fascinating parallels to first-world cultures of today that seem to encourage personal success, achievement, and acquisition of power at the expense of almost anything else of virtue. Remind you of any countries you know of? I found some comfort in Miller suggesting that we can choose to opt out of this kind of society and find fulfillment in a simple life. That's its own reward. Consider the following passage from Sentinel. You can be strong, he said, reaching for her, and pulling her off the ledge, down into the water before him. Her feet touching the bottom, she looked up at him. You are strong, he said. You just don't have to rule the galaxy. She looked away from him, down at the pool. It's what we're born to do, you know, to rule the galaxy. Then the tribe is built on a trick, he said. A deception. Everyone is fighting over something that only one person can have. Just one. Which means that to be a Sith is to be an almost certain failure. Almost everyone who follows your code is doomed to fail, even before he starts. Jelf chortled. (laughs) What kind of philosophy is that? Nudging her chin upward with his hand, he looked into her eyes, brown again. Don't be tricked. You can't lose if you don't play. What's particularly interesting is that Miller doesn't necessarily count out the good points of the Sith. Individualism isn't all bad, 
sometimes you have to look out for yourself some if you want to help anyone else. The star-crossed lovers in this tale seem to come to a happy medium between Jedi and Sith into something altogether new. Books 7 and 8, Pantheon and Secrets, jump ahead another millennium, when Sith society on Kesh is crumbling, both figuratively and literally. One of the first scenes of Pantheon has our hero, the archivist Varner Hiltz, nearly crushed by a collapsing aqueduct. I have to admit here, having the bookish, bumbling Hiltz as the hero of these last two books is a lot of fun. I think I enjoyed reading Hiltz as much as Miller did in creating him. The plot of these final installments is something of a race-against-time mystery novel. The Sith of Kesh have forgotten the true stories behind their grandiose myths, and all it takes to send their world into an apocalyptic tailspin is a revelation that the founders were lowly miners, and subject to a much higher galactic society, and an alien one at that. Hiltz is racing against the clock of destruction to find a new rallying point for the Sith before they tear each other apart. Again, I found fascinating parallels to our modern society. Especially amusing was a line about how any child can grow up to be the Dark Lord. I found it a wry, if dark, reflection on the old American dream of any kid can grow up to be president that was supposedly told at one point to all young children here in the States. Also, Miller certainly steps up his plot pacing, writing style, and creativity in these final installments, making them some of the best of the free series. The ending certainly leaves you wanting a What Happens Next installment, and true to the P.S. alternation of the series' titles, Miller has a postscript available to read as of July 24. However, the final installment, Pandemonium, will only be available if you're willing to pay $4.99 in an ebook format for Star Wars Lost Tribe of the Sith, The Collected Stories. This omnibus will include all eight of the free stories, as well as maps of cash for the first time. Touché, Mr. Miller. It's almost enough for me to break my cheapskate's pledge. But will it? Ah, but I am not telling you unless you purchase Cheapskates, the Collected Reviews. Ha ha ha. Take that, Darth Miller. In all truth and seriousness, I have nothing but appreciation for these fine free novelettes, for letting me explore an ancient Star Wars culture in detail, and thereby letting me reflect for a few moments on my own society. If you visit my blog page, I'll provide a link to Miller's Fiction webpage, which has excellent collected links to the free novelettes in a variety of formats. Well, that's all for today's installment of Cheapskates. The music is by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go, Adam. Thank you so much. And you know what's really nice about Adam? Adam's very organised, and these shows are coming in, or these kind of fact articles that I get off Adam. 
I'm getting like a month and a half before they go out on air. So <laughs> you just keep doing that. And that's the way I like people to roll on this show. Next up is Main Fiction, and it is by Bruce Sterling, no less. The Exterminators Want Ad. The story first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the November-December 2010 edition. Then it came in the the best science fiction and fantasy of the year, volume 5, which was edited by Jonathan Strand. And then in... 2012, February 2012, it came in the collection Gothic High Tech by Bruce Sterling, published by Subterranean Press. I'll put a link on to Subterranean Press just to get a look at that book as well. And if you wanted the best of science fiction, I'll get that one on there as a link as well. His last novel that Bruce had out was The Karyatids in 2009. See, this new collection that he's got out came out 2012-2011, Gothic High Tech. And a book that's on my bedside table as we speak is The Difference Engine. I've got that. We, he did that with William Gibson. Heavy Weather, he also did that. Holy Fire, Zenith the Angel. I mean, it's just, you know, you're kind of one of the founders of this cyberpunk movement. His last published short story was The Goddess of Mercy in 2012. That came out in The Future is Japanese, edited by Nick Mamatas. His first short story, going back to 1976, Man Made Self. It's narrated by Mike Allen, and Mike Allen's a fan. He's a big turn out to be a lovely friend there now as well. And it's lovely how this kind of, this whole world ecosystem that we run here at Starship, so it just is that kind of environment for breeding, like friendship and everything like that. Like you see, Mike has done so much and he's now sitting on the, you know, the Tales to Terrify that he got his own section in the Tales to Terrify with Larry over there. But I'll give you a little heads up. And, you know, the, the cool thing is just before I get into Mike's heads up, remember we played the button bin on Starships over oodles ago, a fantastic story by Mike Allen, just fantastic. That is, and over on Tales to Terrify, they're doing their... First, Tears to Terrify, Volume 1. Yes, and that story is going to be in the book. So how cool is that? But Mike Allen is the editor and publisher of the anthology series Clockwork Phoenix and the poetry journal Mythic Delirium. That's whenever I want to kind of just link to something, I just have to type in Mythic and up comes Mike's. Like I say, he was the Nebula Award finalist in 2009 for his short story, The Button Bin, which in my eyes is just a fantastic story. And his first collection of short fiction, The Button Bin and Other Horrors, is forthcoming in Apex from Apex Books. He is a prolific poet, giving talks on poetry, poetry and science fiction at the Library of Congress. My God. He's also acted in theatre productions where he writes art columns for the daily newspaper as well. His wife, Anita, is a painter, sculptor, costume jewellery maker and also assistant editor and publisher for Mythic Delirium Books. Mike, like I said, Mike's done a few narrations for Starship Sover as well and it had to be Mike for this one. So the Starship Sover is very proud to present The Exterminator's Want Ad by Bruce Sterling. So I'm required to write this want ad in order to get any help with my business. Only I have, like, a very bad trust rating on this system. I have a rotten karma and an awful reputation. Don't even go there. Don't listen to a word he says, because this guy is pure poison. 
So if that kind of crap is enough for you, then you should stop reading this right now. However, somebody's going to read this no matter what. So let me just put it all out on the table. Yes, I'm a public enemy. Yes, I'm an ex-con. Yes, I'm mad, bad, and dangerous to link to. But my life wasn't always like this. Back in the good old days when the world was still solid and not all termite-eaten like this, I used to be a well-to-do, well-respected guy. Let me explain what went on in prison, because you're probably pretty worried about that part. First, I was a non-violent offender. That's important. Second, I turned myself in to face, quote, justice, unquote. That shows that I know resistance was useless. Also a big point on my side. So you would think that the maestros of the new order would cut me some slack in the karma ratings. But no, I'm never trusted. I was on the losing side of a socialist revolution. They didn't call me a political prisoner of their revolution, but that's sure what went on. If you don't believe that, you won't believe anything else I say, so I might as well say it flat out. So, this moldy jail I was in was in this old dot-com McMansion out in the permanent foreclosure zone in the dead suburbs. That's where they cooped us up. This gated community was built for some vanished rich people. That was their low-intensity prison for us rehab detainees. As their rehab population, we were a so-called resiliency commune. This meant we were penniless, and we had to grow our own food and also repair our own jail. Our clothes were unisex plastic orange jumpsuits. They had salvaged those somewhere. They always had plenty of those. So... We persisted out there as best we could under video cam surveillance with parole cuffs on our ankles. See, that was our life. Every week, our itchy, dirty column of detainees got to march 13 miles into town where our captors lived. We did hard labor community service there with our brooms, shovels, picks, and hoes. We got shown off in public as a warning to the others. This place outside was a beltway suburb before Washington was abandoned. The big hurricane ran right over it and crushed it down pretty good, so now it was a big, green, hippie jungle. Our prison McMansion had termites, roaches, mold, and fleas, but once it was a nice house. This rambling wreck of a town was half-storm debris. All the lawns were replaced with wet, weedy, towering patches of bamboo, or marijuana, or hops, or kanaf, or whatever. I never could tell those farm crops apart. The same goes for the garden roofs, which were dirt piled on top of the dirty houses. There were smelly goats running loose, chickens cackling, salvaged umbrellas and chairs toppled into the empty streets. No traffic signs? Because there were no cars. Sustainable Utopia here is a densely crowded settlement full of people in poorly washed clothing who are hanging out making nice. Constant gossip. They call that social interaction. 
No sign of that 1% of the population that once owned half of America. The rich elite just blew it totally. They dropped their globalized ball. They panicked. So they're in jail, like I was. Or they're in exile somewhere, or else they jumped out of penthouses screaming when the hyperinflation ate them alive. And boy, do I ever miss them. No more billboards, no more chain stores, no big-box Chinese depots, and no neon fried food shacks. It's become another world, as in, another world is possible, and we're stuck in there. It's very possible, very real, and it's very smelly. There are constant power blackouts. Every once in a while, some armed platoon of, quote, resilient nation-builder, unquote, militia types would come by on their rusty bicycles. Sometimes they brought shot-up victims on stretchers. The liberated socialist masses were plucking their homemade banjos on their rickety porches. Lots of liberty, equality, fraternity, solidarity, compost dirt, unshaved legs. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And dense crowding. Otherwise, the crickets chirp. Those were like the lucky people who were outside our prison. Those cooperative people are the networked future. So, my cellmate Claire was this 40-something career lobbyist who used to be my boss inside the Beltway. Claire was full of horror stories about the cruelty of the socialist regime because, in the old days before we got ourselves arrested, alarmist tales of this kind were Claire's day job. Claire peddled political spin to the lamestream media to make sure that corporations stayed in command so that situations like our present world stayed impossible. Obviously, Claire was not that great at this strategy. 
Me, I was more of the geek technician in our effort. My job was to methodically spam and troll the sharing networks. I would hack around with them, undermine them, and make their daily lives difficult. Threaten IP lawsuits. Spread some fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Game their reputation systems. Gold farm their alternative economies. Engage in DDoS attacks. Harass the activist ringleaders with blistering personal insults. The usual. Claire and I had lots of co-workers all up and down K Street, both seaboards, too, and all over Texas. Lavishly supported by rich guy think tanks, we were the covert operatives in support of an ailing system. We did that work because it paid great. Personally, I love to buy stuff. I admired a consumer society. I sincerely liked to carry out a clean, crisp commercial transaction, the kind where you simply pay some money for goods and services. I liked driving my SUV to the mall, whipping out my alligator wallet and buying myself some hard liquor, a steak dinner, and maybe a stripper. All that awful stuff at the Pottery Barn and Banana Republic when you never knew who the hell was buying that. That guy was me. Claire and I hated the sharing networks because we were paid to hate them. We hated all social networks, like Facebook, because they destroyed the media that we owned. We certainly hated free software because it was like some ever-growing anti-commercial fungus. We hated search engines and network aggregators, people like Google. Not because Google was evil, but because they weren't. We really hated file-sharers, the swarming pirates who were chewing up the wealth of our commercial sponsors. We hated all networks on principle. We even hated power networks. Wind and solar only sort of worked and were very expensive. We despised green power networks because climate change was a myth. Until the climate actually changed. Then the honchos who paid us started drinking themselves to death. If you want to see a truly changed world, then a brown sky really makes a great start. Back in the day, we could tell the public, Hey, the sky up there is still blue. Who do you believe? Me or your lying eyes? And we tried that, but we ran out of time for it. After that tipping point, our bottom line economy was not reality at all. That was the myth. My former life in Mythland suited me just great. Then I had no air conditioning. My world was wet, dirty, smelly, moldy, swarming with fleas, chiggers, bed bugs, and mosquitoes. Also, I was in prison. When myths implode, that's what happens to good people. So Clara and I discussed our revenge whenever we were out of earshot and oversight of the solar-powered prison webcams. Claire and I spent a lot of time on revenge fantasies, because that kept our morale up. Look, Bobby, she told me, as she scratched graffiti in the wall with a ten-penny nail, this rehab isn't a proper prison at all. This is a bullshit psychological operation intended to brainwash us. Leftists in power always do that. If they give you a fair trial, you can at least get a sentence in due time. If they claim you are crazy, they can sit on your neck forever. 
Maybe we really are crazy now, I said. Having the sky change color can do that to people. There's only one way out of this kumbaya nuthouse, she said. We gotta learn to talk the way they want to hear. So that's our game plan from now on. We act very contrite. We do their bongo dance, whatever. Then they let us out of this gulag. After that, we can take some steps. Claire was big on emigrating from the USA. Claire somehow imagined that there was some country in the world that didn't have weather. The inconvenient laws of physics had never much appealed to Claire. We donated the laws of physics to our opponents by pretending that air wasn't air. Now the long run of that tactic was splattered all around us. We had nothing left but worthless paper money and some red state churches half full of creationists. We had gone bust. We had suffered a vast Confederate-style defeat. The economy was gone with the wind, and everybody was going to stay poor, angry, and dirt stupid for the next century. So, when we weren't planting beans in the former backyard or digging mold out of the attic insulation, we had to do rehab therapy. This was our prisoner consciousness-building encounter scheme. The regime made us play social games. We weren't allowed computer games in prison, just dice, graph paper, and some charcoal sticks that we made ourselves. So we played this elaborate paper game called Dungeons and Decency three times a week. The Lady Warden was our dungeon master. This prison game was diabolical. It was very entertaining and compulsively playable. The game had been designed by left-wing interaction designers, the kind of creeps who built not-for-profit empires like Wikipedia, except they designed it for losers like us. Everybody in rehab had to role-play. We had to build ourselves another identity, because this new pretend identity was supposed to help us escape the stifling spiritual limits of our previous, unliberated, greedy individualist identities. In this game, I played an evil dwarf with an axe, which would have been okay because that identity was pretty much me all along, except that the game's reward system had been jiggered to reward elaborate acts of social collaboration. Of course we wanted to do raids and looting and cool fantasy fighting, but that wasn't on. We were very firmly judged on the way we played this rehab game. It was never about grabbing the gold. It was all about forming trust coalitions so as to collectively readjust our fantasy infrastructure. This effort went on endlessly. We played for ages. We kept demanding to be let out. They kept claiming we didn't get it yet. The prison food got a little better. The weather continued pretty bad. We started getting charity packages. Once some folk singers came by and played us some old Johnny Cash songs. Otherwise, the gaming was pretty much it. A whole lot was resting on this interactive Dungeons game. If you did great, they gave you some meat and maybe a parole hearing. If you blew it off, you were required to donate blood into the socialized health care system. Believe you me, when they tap you more than a couple of times on a diet of homegrown cabbage, you start feeling mighty peaked. Yeah, it got worse. 
because we had to cooperate with other teams of fantasy game players in other prisons, these other convicts rated our game performance while we were required to rate them. We got to see the highlights of their interaction on webcams. We prisoners were always on webcams. We were supposed to rate these convicts on how well they were sloughing off their selfish ways and learning to integrate themselves into a spiritualized, share-centric, enlightened society, pretty much like Alcoholics Anonymous, but without the God or the booze. Worse yet, this scheme was functioning. Some of our cellmates, especially the meek, dorky, geeky ones, were quickly released. The wretches strung out on dope were pretty likely to manage in the new order, too. They'd given up jailing people for that. This degeneration had to be stopped somehow. Since I had been a professional troll, I was great at gaming. I kept inventing ways to hack the gaming system and get people to fight. This was the one thing I could do inside the prison that recalled the power I'd once held in my old life. So I threw myself into that therapy, heart and soul. I worked my way up to 15th level evil dwarf. I was the envy of the whole prison system, a living legend. I got myself some prison tattoos, made a shiv. Maybe I had a bleak future stuck inside the joint, but I still had integrity. I had defied their system. I could vote down the stool pigeons and boost the stand-up guys who were holding out against the screws. I was actually doing great at that, really into it, indomitable, until Claire told me that my success was queering her chances of release. They didn't care what I did inside the fantasy game. All that time I was really being judged on my abuse of the rating system. Because they knew what I was up to, it was all a psychological trap. The whole scheme was their anti-hacker honeypot. I had fallen into it like the veriest newbie schmo. You see, they were scanning us all the time. Nobody ever gets it about the tremendous power of network surveillance. That's how they ruled the world, though, by valuing every interaction, by counting every click. Every time one termite touched the feelers of another termite, they were adding that up in a database. Everybody was broke, extremely poor, like pre-industrial hardscrabble poor, very modest, very green, but still surviving. The one reason we weren't all chewing each other's cannibal thigh bones, like the people on certain more disadvantaged continents, was because they'd stapled together this survival regime out of socialist software. It was very social, ultra-social. No privatization, no private sector, and no privacy. They pretended that it was all about happiness and kindliness, and free-spirited cooperation, and gay rainbow banners, and all that. It was really a system that was firmly based on social capital. Everything social was your only wealth. In a real gift economy, you were the gift. You were living by your karma. 
Instead of a good old hundred-dollar bill, you just had a virtual Facebooky thing with your own smiling picture on it, and that picture meant, "Please invest in the bank of me." That was their new deal: one big game of socially approved activities. For instance, reading Henry David Thoreau. I did that. I kind of had to. I had this yellow, crumbly prison edition of a public domain version of Walden. Man, I hated that Thoreau guy. I wanted to smack Mister Nonviolent Moral Resistance right across his chops. I did learn something valuable from him, though. This communard transcendental thing that had us by the neck. The homemade beans, the funky shacks, the passive-aggressive peacenik dropout thing—that was not something that had invaded America from Mars. That was part of us. It had been there all along. Their new age spiritual practice was America's dark, freaky undercurrent. It was like witchcraft in the Catholic Church. Now these organized network freaks had taken over the hurricane wreck of the church. They were sacrificing goats in there and having group sex under their hammer and sickle, while witches read tarot cards to the beat of techno music. These lifestyle of health and sustainability geeks were maybe seven percent of America's population, but the termite people had seized power. They were the last best hope of a society on the skids. They owned all the hope because they had always been the ones who knew our civilization was hopeless. So, I was in their prison until I got my head around that new reality. Until I realized that this was inevitable, that it was the way forward, that I loved little brother. After that, I could go walkies. That was the secret. All the rest of it, the natural turmoil of the period, the swarms of IEDs and the little flying bomb drones and the wiretaps and the lynch mobs and the incinerators and the regrettable excesses, as they like to call them, those were not the big story. That was like the exciting sci-fi post-apocalypse part that basically meant nothing that mattered. Everybody wants the cool post-disaster story, the awesome part where you take over whole abandoned towns and have sex with cool punk girls and leather rags who have sawed-off shotguns. Boy, I could only wish. In sustainable land, did we have a cool, wild survivalist lifestyle like that? No way. We had like night soil buckets and vegetarian okra casseroles. The big story was all about a huge doomed society that had wrecked itself so thoroughly that its junkyard was inherited by hippies. The epic tale of the Soviet Union, basically, same thing, different verse, only more so. Well, I could survive in that world. I could make it through that. People can survive a reconstruction if they keep their noses clean and don't drink themselves to death. The compost heap had turned over. All the magic mushrooms came out of the dark, so they were on top for a while. So what? So I learned to sit still and read a lot because that looks like innocent behavior. 
When all the hippie grannies are watching you over their HAL 9000 monitors, poring over your every activity like Vegas croupiers with their zoom and slow-mo, then quietly reading paper books looks great. That's the major consolation of philosophy. So in prison, I read like Jean-Paul Sartre, who was still under copyright, so I reckon they stole his work. I learned some things from him. That changed me. Hell is other people. That is the sinister side of a social software shared society. That people suck. That hell is other people. Sharing with people is hell. When you share, then no matter how much money you have, they just won't leave you alone. I quoted Jean-Paul Sartre to the parole board, a very serious left-wing philosopher, lots of girlfriends, even feminists. He ate speed all the time, he hung out with Maoists, except for the Maoist part, Jean-Paul Sartre is my guru. My life today is all about my existential authenticity, because I'm a dissident in this society. Maybe I'm getting old-fashioned, but I'll never go away. I'll never believe what the majority says it believes, and I won't do you the favor of dying young, either. Because the inconvenient truth is that, authentically, about 15% of everybody is no good. We are the no-goodniks. That's the one thing the right knows, that the left never understands. That, although 15% of people are saintly and liberal bleeding hearts, and you could play poker with them blindfolded, another 15 are like me. I'm a troll. I'm a griefer. I'm in it for me, folks. I need to collaborate or share the way I need to eat a bale of hay and moo. Well, like I said to the parole board, so what are you going to do to me? Ideally, you keep me tied up and you preach at me. Then I become your hypocrite. I'm still a dropout. You don't convince me. I can tell you what finally happened to me. I got off. I never expected that, couldn't predict it, it came out of nowhere. Yet another world was possible, I guess. It's always like that. There was a nasty piece of work up in the hills with some, quote, social bandits, unquote. Robin Hood is a cool guy for the peace and justice contingent until he starts robbing the social networks instead of the sheriff of Nottingham. Robin goes where the money is until there's no money. Then Robin goes where the food is. So Robin and his merry band had a face-off with my captors. That got pretty ugly, because social networks versus bandit mafias is like ninjas versus pirates. It's a counterculture fight to the finish. However, my geeks had the technology, while Redneck Robin just had his terrorist bows and arrows and the suits of Lincoln Green. So he fought the law, and the law won, eventually. That fight was always a much bigger deal than I was. As dangerous criminals go, 
A keyboard-tapping troll like me was small potatoes compared to the redneck hillbilly Muhadeen. So the European Red Cross happened to show up during that episode because they like gunfire. The Europeans are all prissy about the situation, of course. They are like, what's with these illegal detainees in orange jumpsuits, and how come they don't have proper medical care? So, I finally got paroled. I got amnestied. Not my pal Claire, unfortunately for her. Claire and our female warden had some kind of personal difficulty because they'd been college roommates or something. Like, maybe some stolen boyfriend trouble? Something very girly and tenderly personal and all that. But in a network society, the power is all personal. The personal is political. You mess with the tender feelings of a network maven, and she's not an objective bureaucrat following the rule of law. She's more like, to the Bastille with this subhuman irritation. Claire was all super upset to see that I got my walking papers while she was heading for the gulag's deepest, darkest inner circles. Claire was like, Bobby, wait, I thought you and I were going to watch each other's backs. And I'm like, girlfriend, if it were only a matter of money, I would go bail for you. But I got no money. Nobody does. So hasta luego. I'm off on my own. So at last I was out of the nest and I needed a job. In a social network society, they don't have any jobs. Instead, you have to invent public-spirited networky things to do in public. If people really like what you do for the commons, then you get all kinds of respect and juice. They make nice to you. They suck up to you all the time with potluck suppers, and they redecorate your loft. And I really hated that. I still hate it. I'll always hate it. I'm not a make-nice-live-in-the-hive kind of guy. However, even in a very densely networked society, there are some useful guys that you don't want to see very much. They're very convenient members of society, crucial people even, but they're just not sociable. You don't want to hang around with them, you don't want to give them back rubs, follow their life stream, none of that. Society's antisocial guys. There's the hangman. No matter how much justice he dishes out, the hangman is never a popular guy. There's the grave digger. The locals surely had plenty of work for him, so that job was already taken. Then there was the exterminator. The man who kills bugs. Me. In a messed-up climate, there are a whole lot of bugs. Zillions of them. You get those big, empty suburbs, the burnt-out skyscrapers, lot of wreckage, junk, constant storms and no air conditioning, smorgasbord for roaches and silverfish. Tear up the lawns and grow survival gardens, and you are going to get a whole lot of the nastiness that lefties call biodiversity. Vast swarming mobs of six-legged vermin. An endless, fertile, booming supply. Mosquitoes carry malaria. Fleas carry typhus. Malaria and typhus are never popular, even in the greenest, most tree-huggy societies. So I found myself a career. A good career. Killing bugs. 
megatons of them. My major challenge is the termites. Because they are the best organized, termites are fascinating. Termites are not just pale little white ants that you can crush with your thumb. The individual termites, sure they are, but a nest of termites is a network society. They share everything. They bore a zillion silent holes through seemingly solid wood. They have nurses, engineers, soldiers, a whole social system. They run off fungus inside their guts. It's amazing how sophisticated they are. I learn something new about them every day, and I kill them. I'm on call all the time to kill termites. I got all the termite business I can possibly handle. I figure I can combat those swarmy little pests until I get old and gray. I stink of poison constantly, and I wear mostly plastic, and I'm in a breathing mask like Darth Vader, but I am going to be a very useful, highly esteemed member of this society. There will still be some people like me when this whole society goes kaput, and some day it surely will, because no utopia ever lasts, except for the termites, who've been at it since the Triassic period. So that's my story. This is my want ad. It's all done now, except for the last part. That's your part. The important part, where you yourself can contribute. I need a termite intern. It's steady work and lots of it, and now, because I wrote all this for you, you know what kind of guy you are pitching in with. I know that you're out there somewhere, because I'm not the only guy around like me. If you got this far, you're going to send me email and a personal profile. It would help a lot if you were a single female, 25 to 35, shapely, and a brunette. <laughs> And there you go. That is, don't forget, copyright, Bruce Sterling's. Yes, don't go messing with him. Bruce, thank you so much. Mike, lovely narration. Thank you. Now, I've got this little promo by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Amy's, you know me, I kind of thought I was like kind of throwing myself into projects and that, but Amy's now doing it. I mean, like I say, Amy is Professor Amy H. Sturgis. And not only is Amy doing our the Hunger Games live video lecture. Amy's took on this role now. He's going to teach science fiction to kind of that, you know, that kind of degree level. So I've got a little promo by our very own Amy. Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I'm here today to talk to you about a new endeavor of mine and invite you to check it out online. This fall, beginning the final week of August 2012, I will be teaching a new course online and available internationally. It is a graduate course called Science Fiction Part 1, From Modern Beginnings Through the Golden Age, and I'll be teaching that through Mythgard Institute. It's a graduate-level course available for those who are seeking a master's at Mythgard Institute with Signum University, but it's also open to anyone who is interested, who would like simply to audit, that is, to sit in, without seeking a degree. What does the class entail? 
It is 12 weeks long, and for those 12 weeks, I will be offering two lectures a week, each of an hour and 15 minutes. So that's two and a half hours per week for 12 weeks. Lectures on the history of science fiction. For those people who audit, that is, who take the course just for the love of it, they may attend all of my lectures live and ask questions. Or, as soon as the lectures are over, they may download the lectures as either audio files or audio video files、uh, in order to watch or listen at their leisure. They will also be able to email me with questions between lectures, and they'll have access to the online discussion board for all students. Those who take the course for degree credit will also have weekly discussion session meetings led by、uh, dedicated preceptors. This is the first part of a two part series that will cover the history of science fiction, and I'm really excited about it. I've taught this course at the undergraduate and graduate level before, but never to a worldwide audience, never live online. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I'm really looking forward to it. Here are some of the topics that I'll be covering in my lectures Proto Science Fiction, Frankenstein, and the Birth of Modern Science Fiction, Ratiocination, Technology, and the Growth of the Genre. Jules Verne and the Scientific Romance, H.G. Wells and the Science Fiction Parable, Utopia, Dystopia, and Lost Worlds, The Pulps, The Editors, and Scientific Fiction, Early Science Fiction, Gender, and the Rise of Fandom, World War II and its Aftermath, Science Fiction, The Frontier, and the Young Adult Reader, Science Fiction Film and Television, Science Fiction Goes Epic, and Robert Heinlein and the Golden Age. There are assigned readings. The students who are taking the class for credit are expected to read all of them. Those who are taking it just for the love of it are encouraged to follow along. We will be discussing many, many more works than we're actually reading, but we'll be reading quite a few short stories, novellas, and novels. Just to give you a sense of some of the authors whose works will be assigned, they are Mary Shelley, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Fitz James O'Brien, Edgar Allan Poe, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, E.M. Forster, Yevgeny Zamyatin, H.P. Lovecraft, John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Murray Leinster, C.L. Moore and Henry Cutner, Judith Merrill, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Tom Godwin, Alfred Bester, Walter M. Miller Jr., Frank Herbert, and Robert Heinlein. The second half of the course, Science Fiction Part 2, will build on the first and will be offered in a future semester. It will pick up the history of science fiction with the new wave and begin by considering authors such as J.G. Ballard, Harlan Ellison, Samuel R. Delaney, and Ursula K. Le Guin. I do hope you will go by the Mythgard Institute at mythgard.org. That's M Y T H G A R D.org. And check out more information about my class. It promises to be a really exciting, interactive discussion and exploration of science fiction. And I'm thrilled to be able to offer this. I do hope some of you will join me with this adventure. And I appreciate your time and attention very much. I will end by reading you the course description. What does it mean to be human? Are we alone? 
What wonders or terrors will tomorrow hold? Join me, Dr. Amy H. Sturgis, as I explore the way in which the literature of science fiction over time has asked the question, what if? This course will consider the development of the genre from proto-science fiction writings through the Golden Age, with an eye toward how the great works and movements within science fiction both reflect the concerns and attitudes of their time and imagine beyond them. Discover why author Ray Bradbury called science fiction the most important literature in the history of the world. Again, you can find out more information at the Mythgard Institute at mythgard.org. This class is open to everyone internationally, and I hope to see some of you there. Thank you so much. There'll be a link on there too, Amy's new course at the front of the website. And, you know, I mean, like you say, if you're, if you're into kind of getting a, a, you know, that kind of standard in science fiction, wow, man, you know what I mean? How cool is that that you can learn it to that level? Just, man, Amy, big hugs to you. So that is, sure, 250. Come, it's coming up to them Hugo Awards, the hearts starting to race. What do you think? <laughs> well, anyways, we'll just—it's in—it's in the gods. It's just lovely to be nominated. My God, man, that's just fantastic in itself. And just good luck to everyone that's in the everyone that's going up for Hugo Awards. You know what I mean? It's a—it's an—it's an honor, and it's one I just love to be quite honest. To get nominated for a Hugo Award, man, it's just stunning. Do you know what I mean? Starship Silver, wow, man, still just. Hits you right there, and you think, "Oh God!" And you know, listen, we're just reaching over. That—that's—that's that's the Hugo Award, two thousand and ten. I've got my little baby there. So, good luck to everyone. Put, put that back there. Who's up for that award? You know what I mean? Fantastic. If you want to support, let's go. Let's start singing. If you want to support Starship Sofa, umpteen ways. Now you can get the original shows that myself and Kieran did from the website for that. You can come over and you know want, want to listen to Amy H. Sturgis with her lecture, or if you want to come over and you know listen to Amy H. Sturgis on her video lecture with the Hunger Games and science fiction tradition. There's that. Or just a downright donation. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.